This edition of the podcast is brought to you by the Weekly Standard 2016 Caribbean Cruise, December 4th through 11th. Let's face it, after this election season, we're all going to need a drink and a chance to get away. And what better way to rest up, recover, and get ready for the battle ahead than to join your Weekly Standard favorites like Bill Crystal, Fred Barnes, Steve Hayes, Jonathan Last, Matt Labash, and Matt Continenti on a beautiful Caribbean cruise. There'll be plenty of opportunities for one-on-one conversation with your Weekly Standard favorites, plus special guests like Eric Erickson of TheResurgent.com, Mary Catherine Hamm, Molly Hemingway of The Federalist, and Pulitzer Prize-winning cartoonist Michael Ramirez. You'll enjoy daily panels and speeches, private cocktail parties, and nightly dinners with your fellow guests and speakers. To learn more or to reserve your cabin, go to WeeklyStandardCruise.com. This is one year when we all need something to look forward to. So look forward to the Weekly Standard 2016 Caribbean Cruise, December 4th through 11th, weeklystandardcruise.com. Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us from the Weekly Standard is literary editor Philip Terzian, who has a piece up on the website about another American uh, presidential candidate visiting in Mexico. Uh, What's that about? Well, it was actually he was a president-elect. Uh, it was 35 years ago, and it was Ronald Reagan um, who – people forget now that when Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980, uh, the general view of him in the chattering classes was not too far removed from the way they're talking about Donald Trump. He was a grade B Hollywood actor, unlettered, uh, had no experience of the outside world, uh, was a creature of sort of sinister John Birch uh, members in Southern California and so forth and so on. and. When he was actually elected, they were not only mortified by the fact that he would be governing us, but that he would be the representative of the United States abroad. So during the transition period, which we'll remember, uh, the American hostages were still imprisoned in Tehran. So Reagan wanted to be very circumspect about appearing to be conducting foreign policy under the circumstances. But in early January of 1981, a couple of weeks before he was inaugurated, he crossed the he symbolically walked across the border at Juarez, New Mexico, to meet the president of Mexico, a man named Jose Lopez Portillo, and which was an interesting innovation because hitherto Mexican presidents had always made the pilgrimage to Washington to meet the new president, and it was considered interesting that Reagan, who was thought to be a terrible nationalist and probably didn't like the Mexicans and so forth and so on, had made this gesture of going to see Portillo. Uh, The meeting was interesting for two reasons. One is that um, the press was exclusively interested in finding out what Reagan and Portillo had talked about vis-a-vis El Salvador, which, of course, nowadays nobody remembers. But <laughs> but that was not the reason uh, Reagan uh, went there. And, of course, he didn't say anything. He probably didn't bring up El Salvador with Portillo since he disagreed with him about it, undoubtedly. But it was this it was seen by it was intended by him and it was seen by everybody as this symbolic gesture of this guy who people were a little uncertain about. And it is true. He had no official foreign experience who made this very grand gesture of meeting and getting to be friendly with the Mexican president. What I always enjoy in retrospect about it is that the whole effect was spoiled as far as my journalistic colleagues at the time were concerned, because Reagan presented uh, Lopez Portillo with a case of California wine, which is fine. And Lopez Portillo actually gave Reagan um, a couple of books he'd written and so on. But Reagan also gave him 
this very elegant and impressive looking hunting rifle from actually Reagan's own collection, which my colleagues thought was adding insult to injury because not only was it a bumptious thing to do, but violent, uh, oppressive America, right. a gun, what could be worse? <laughs> well, the joke, of course, is that first of all, the Mexicans were very impressed by the whole gesture, even though there was no substance to the meeting. But the other thing is that Lopez Portillo was a big hunter. He loved the rifle. There's a famous news photograph of him handling it as Reagan right. handed it. He was very delighted by the presence. So, so it was a coup on Reagan's uh, part, I think. Now, I love the fact that uh, the president of Mexico gave Reagan not just a couple books about Mexican history, but books he had written himself. Yes, exactly. That's, as, as a guy who's written a couple of books, I, 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 try, I would never give my book to anybody. <laughs> Too embarrassing. It's, it's so self-referential. Oh, it, it is. But in uh, having written one myself, it's one of the few ways you can get it in circulation. Uh, very good so. point. Very good point. But that, I thought that was interesting. It also brings to mind other presidents about whom people had pre-taking up office concerns about how they deal with the rest of the world. Now, I want to ask you about one that's always I've always found interesting: the reaction of Truman, this haberdasher from this. He really was. People forget now a machine hack politician. He had no demonstrated no great political skills. He became vice president through this, uh, you know, oddities of history. And suddenly, not only is he, does he become president, he becomes a wartime president. And then he's faced with one of the most momentous decisions any president's ever made, the decision to use atomic weapons at, at war. What were the thoughts bef- about Truman before he became president when people, and then when he took office? Well, he was chosen f- f- to be Rosa. I mean, it's astonishing in retrospect now that nobody really cared very much about who was vice president. Right. Although Truman's accession obviously dramatized how important it can be. The feeling about Truman, I'll be, I'll be a little more generous to him <laughs> than you are. He was a two-term Democratic senator. Yes, he was a Pendergast machine mm-hmm. Guy, but he'd made a reputation for himself during World War II with his investigation committee. He looked into price gouging in in, in uh, uh, wartime production and so on. So he had a he had some reputation, and they the party the Democratic Party leaders, to their credit, were determined to get rid of Henry Wallace. And Truman was seen as someone who had a a kind of bipartisan wartime reputation because of the Truman. Uh, committee and he had no real big time enemies or anything. So, and as far as Roosevelt was concerned, you know, whoever you want is fine with me. He didn't really <laughs> care. One of the interesting things about when Truman became president was that you speak of the atomic bomb decision. One of the things Secretary of War Henry Stimson had to take the new president into a side room and brief him on was the existence of the atomic bomb. Truman knew absolutely nothing whatsoever about the Manhattan Project. Um, The feeling at the time, I I would say, um, both in politics and journalistically, was that everyone held their breath. Um, The great Franklin D. Roosevelt was being succeeded by someone of whom we don't know very much. uh, And at at the precise moment when we needed the leadership of the American president in a, in a very vital moment toward the end of the war, we'd lost Roosevelt and we had, you know, mm-hmm. this so-so senator in his place. <laughs> I mean, I think the consensus of history is that Truman rose to the occasion and the, the man met the office, right. as it were. But that's a good example of that. I would add to that, uh, t- using the same person, um, 
there was a kind of repetition of this uh, seven years later when Dwight D. Eisenhower became president. We we off we forget too that the, certainly the view among Democrats and um, a lot of journalists was that Ike was a nice guy and had uh, done well in the army because he was a nice guy. Um, but he really didn't know very much about the world. And, uh, you know, he was going to be at sea. But he didn't know anything about politics. He'd been in the Army all his adult life. There's a famous line in in uh, the oral history of Harry Truman's life done by Merrill Miller where, where Truman is reminiscing about this. And he says that poor Ike, he'll be sitting in the Oval Office snapping his fingers do this, do that, like it's do this, do that, like it's the army, and of course, no one will will do anything. And my view has always been that quite the opposite. Uh, Eisenhower had long experience of Washington. He'd worked in the War Department in the nineteen twenties and thirties. He'd been he'd been MacArthur's deputy in the Philippines. Of course, during the war, he had worked at the highest levels of of um, of wartime uh, military and civil leadership. But um, furthermore, he knew a great deal about how Washington probably had more practical Washington bureaucratic experience than Harry Truman had. So he, he knew what he was doing when he was snapping his fingers or not. I, I want to ask about one more. There are a couple of examples we could go back to. Lincoln would be an example of a guy that what to expect from this literally unknown person. But, of course, the war, the, the, the looming war, took that away. There was no time for speculation. You had to get right to a war. Another example, Andrew Jackson, we could talk about. But I want to talk about Teddy Roosevelt because even I'm familiar with that what Mark Hanna quote. Right. But, uh, I told I I told McKinley not to choose him in uh, Chicago or wherever the convention is. Now that damn cowboy is president of the United States. Were people worried about a cowboy presidency with with Teddy Roosevelt? Well, I think Hannah was more worried about controlling him politically. I don't think. Uh, I mean, because after all, McKinley was the president during the Spanish American War when Roosevelt had been a sub cabinet mm-hmm. officer in the McKinley administration. So I think it was, and, and really the, his service in the, the San Juan Hill and all that is what made Theodore Roosevelt politically. It made him, he then ran for governor of New York and then, then it was put on the McKinley reelection ticket in 1900. I think, I think people were more concerned about Roosevelt as a personality, uh, how he would behave. Would he, could, could people like Mark Hanna control him in the White House? And the answer was no. <laughs> <laughs> Although their control of McKinley is greatly exaggerated as well, but his his concern was more political than anything else. Uh, and the the flamboyance of Teddy Roosevelt, yes, speaking, which was which echoes perhaps to, to some people say that the Republicans have nominated a somewhat flamboyant. I don't know who would say that, but you know, some I say can't that even that's think true. Who they're referring to, but no, Roosevelt was an unprecedented sort of personality. He came to. He was, first of all, to this day, he's our youngest president, and he was not only young and impetuous, but he had an, a gigantic family. And in, in a kind of Jacksonian way, they took over the White House during the Roosevelt presidency. <laughs> the children all had, you know, hamsters, snakes, horses <laughs> running in and out. It was, it was regarded as relatively undignified. It's interesting to note, by the way, that it was during the Roosevelt years that the name of the building uh, was changed, in effect, from Executive Mansion to the White House. It's actually mm. Theodore Roosevelt who started calling it the white, the more informal uh, White House rather than the Executive Mansion. 
Oh, that's interesting. Well, once it's known as uh, Casa del Trump, as of uh, tw- tw- June, January twentieth, twenty seventeen, exactly. It's gonna. I'm telling you, the the casino in the back is gonna be glorious. Philip Terzian, literary editor with the Weekly Standard. Thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate your time. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Don't miss a single podcast. Go to iTunes.com and subscribe to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Also check out our new products on PodcastOne.com as well. I'm your host, Michael Graham.